Well, if you would remain standing and turn your Bibles open to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And before I read from verse 1 down through verse 12, let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the reading and the preaching of the gospel this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and ask for your blessing, enlightenment, and power. Lord, we are not presumptuous to think just because we open our Bibles that somehow we can make use of it apart from you. We need you. We need you to come to us this morning, inhabit our praise, Lord, and as you have done so, now inhabit the preaching of the gospel Help us, Lord, be amazed at this wonderful truth, essential truth of Christianity. Help us, Father, embrace it with our hearts and not simply our minds. Let it not be a cultural reality, but, Lord, a spiritual, theological, eternal reality that we all possess and have. May we be changed and moved, O Lord, by these truths we hear this morning. And may Christ be ever so precious to us, more now than ever before, because he is our Savior. He is the Lord of glory, and he is worthy, Lord, of our submission and service. In Christ's name, amen. Let me begin reading at verse 1 of chapter 24. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men standing, or two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Well, he is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words and returned from the tomb and reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And now there were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. But these words appeared to them as nonsense, and they would not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, And he went away to his home marveling at what had happened. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Beloved, the gospel of Luke was intended for Gentiles. It was written by Luke in order to help the Gentiles come to salvation In Jesus Christ, Luke acts as a very precise historian. In fact, he tells us in the opening chapter of the gospel that he had written it on behalf of the illustrious, uh, very celebrated person of Theophilus. It's possible that Theophilus had commissioned Luke to write a narrative, a gospel for the Gentiles in order to aid he and Paul in Paul's missionary journeys. It wouldn't be out of sorts for that to be the case. In case you are not aware, Luke not only wrote this gospel, but he also wrote the book of Acts. Acts sort of is the part two of the gospel. Luke ends the gospel with this narrative of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and continues 
that victorious theme of Christ over sin, death, and the devil throughout the book of Acts. In fact, there is some, I think, encouraging debate over whether or not should the book of Acts be called the Acts of the Apostles, which it is, or the Acts of Jesus Christ. Some have even labeled it in printing in various old versions of the Bible, the Acts of the Holy Spirit, indicating that it is a testimony of divine origin. This is the testimony of God. This is the result. This is the reality that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And what you see going forth in the preaching of the gospel, starting with the apostles, is but the testimony of that glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, theologically, this chapter begins the exaltation of Christ. There are two terms used in describing the saving work of Jesus Christ, and the first one is his humiliation. And that is before Jesus could be exalted, before he could be raised from the dead, he had to be, well, he had to put on human flesh. He had to humble himself. And we call that in theology his humiliation. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the conception, beginning at the conception of Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin Mary, his growing up in obscurity, him robing himself with all of the infirmities of human flesh. Hebrews tells us that in order for Jesus to be our sovereign mediator, our true mediator, our saving mediator, he had to be truly man. Thus his humiliation because, well, he was the son of God. The book of Philippians says that he did not consider it robbery to add to himself a human nature, to his divine nature. He never ceased being God. He remained fully God, but yet took to himself a human nature and became both fully God and fully man. Now, I know that is staggering. It absolutely is. And we can spend a lifetime meditating, praying about, and studying the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the point. That we would spend our earthly lives after coming to salvation in the meditation and study and contemplation of our glorious Savior who is both God and man. The chapter highlights, along with the other gospel writers, including John, the dullness, the disbelief that the apostles and even these women that Luke records in these opening verses of this chapter held in relation to Jesus Christ even on this third day. Even if you were to go back and you read the Gospels and you would read all four of them, you would realize that Jesus throughout his ministry highlighted and pointed out that he has come to suffer and die and that he must suffer and die, that he must be handed over to wicked men and put to death. And they never seem to truly grasp that reality, that truth. Maybe, maybe those who witnessed the crucifixion of Jesus, and not all of them did, remember after Jesus' arrest, the uh, Disciples were scattered, and only a few. In fact, we only have recorded that John is even there at the very foot of the cross. So he was right there before the face of Jesus. In fact, Jesus spoke to John concerning his mother and his mother concerning John. 
maybe the horrific nature of Jesus' death paralyzed them in some way or another in thinking that how could anyone rise from this? I don't want to go into great detail, but it was agonizing and it was horrific. And maybe in their own human weakness and psychology, it just did not dawn on them that there would be any coming back from this. The scourging, the beating, the crucifixion, the stabbing with the spear. I mean, we don't know, it's speculation. But I think a number of us were to witness such a thing we too would be affected extremely by it. It would have a dramatic effect upon us, no doubt. Even those of us that doesn't seem to be squeamish over blood and other things, we would, I doubt, very seriously could gaze upon such a, a scene when someone has been harmed to that degree brutal, brutalized and tortured. And then, of course, he gave up the ghost. I want to break the text down for you, explain it, and then I'm going to address some theological applications um, at the very end. So let's look at the text and let's see if we can make sense of it and at least grasp it and hide it away in our hearts and our minds so that we might find it useful for meditation throughout the day. The key verses that I want to highlight come from the angel that these women meet at the tomb. Beginning at the end of verse 5, notice these words. Now this angel who speaks to the women says, Why do you seek the living among the dead? A piercing question. And an admonition for sure, but veiled in charity. He is not here, the angel says, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. Now that's the focus. That's the point of the whole chapter And this is where the disciples and the women all have to come to reconcile in their minds because they all come to the tomb with unbelieving hearts. The text begins by pointing out the affection of these women for Jesus Christ. We could read the Gospels and we could see that Jesus had ministered to many of these women, cast out devils from these women. I mean, Luke highlights more than any of the other Gospel writers how these women followed after Jesus and tended to him during his earthly ministry. And we see in verse 1 that the, the sun has not yet broken the horizon that they are prepared to go and anoint Jesus' body with these spices. And in fact, John highlights that Mary Magdalene was there at the tomb before the sun ever crested the horizon. She couldn't wait. She could not contain herself. She wanted to be there as early as possible. In verse one, it says, but on the first day of the week, that would be Sunday after the Hebrew Sabbath on a Saturday. At early dawn, all of the gospel writers highlight the, the early nature of their visit. They couldn't wait. They had planned. They had prepared. They wanted to be there as soon as possible. And they went to the tomb 
taking the spices that they had prepared. Their affection is seen in their early rising and leaving the safety of their homes and traveling on roads that are not necessarily safe, particularly for women. But they didn't care. They didn't have that concern. They wanted to be there as early as possible, and they had spent a portion at least of the Sabbath or at least begin late Sabbath because that Saturday Sabbath would have ended uh, around 7 o'clock on Saturday evening. It would have started on Friday and rolled into the evening. Friday evening to Saturday evening would have been the Hebrew Sabbath. And they begin preparing these spices to wash Jesus' body with. But notice in verse 2, as we look at their affection and surprise, they had found that the stone had been rolled away. Now, the stone would have had to been be rolled away in order for them to minister to the body of Jesus. Someone would need to be there. Maybe there was a a cemetery attendant, I'm not sure. As I did my research into the mannerisms of the Hebrew culture, I really couldn't find anything related to a, a cemetery attendant, but someone would have had to been there in order to roll the stone back so the women could minister to the body of Jesus. And the text tells us that they were astounded that when they got there, the stone had already been moved. Now, if you read the the gospel of Matthew and whatnot, you know that the Pharisees and the high priest were very concerned about the disciples robbing the body of Jesus and deceiving the people that he had well, risen from the dead. And so they had asked for extra soldiers, and which they were given, and that they had put a royal seal upon the tomb to keep anyone from rolling that stone away. Hey, but the angels did not care. And that's who we're going to find. That's how we find out that who rolled this stone away. These angels are not concerned with the laws of Caesar. In verse three, it says, and they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. In fact, you read the other gospels, but the linen garment that he was wrapped in was folded neatly and placed on its bed. And they were perplexed, meaning Luke, as well as the other writers, highlight this idea that they don't understand this. They have yet to contemplate or to consider that he has risen from the dead. They are perplexed in that, well, who would take his dead body? That's what they're thinking. They're not thinking in terms of a victorious risen Savior. They're thinking in terms someone has stolen our teacher. Who would, have, who would do such a thing? And they were perplexed by this. And behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. The other gospel highlights and later on in Luke, it highlights that these were angels. So the, so the scriptures don't leave us wondering about this interaction and this conversation that these women have at the tomb. And in fact, we believe there was as many as at least three angels. If you would take and reconcile all the gospel narratives together, there was one outside the tomb that the ladies met. And it seems to be that these women were coming from different households, but kind of all arrived, well, sort of at the same time. Mary Magdalene probably being the first one because she arrived before the sun actually crested the horizon. An angel on the outside of the tomb and two angels on the inside of the tomb. So at least three. There might have been more, but we know of at least three recorded in Holy Scripture. 
And now these angels begin to speak to the women. And this is the admonition, but I, I don't want it to come across as it being a harsh admonition because I don't believe it is. I do believe that the reason they start off with the question, why do you seek the living among the dead? It is couched, this admonition is couched in great love and consideration for their love and well, passion, their affection for Jesus. It's not that they don't love Jesus. They, they do love Jesus. Well, they're just blinded by the reality that he is really who he said he is and that he would rise from the dead. They just, for whatever reason, similar to very... Similar to us, beloved, how many times have we heard the gospel preached? How many times have we went and looked at eyewitness of scripture and we looked at these amazing testimonies and we have looked at these amazing events and miracles and whatnot and we see how even God is touching this world in his son Jesus Christ and we can look around even this room and see people that he has touched and changed and yet we don't listen. We do not listen. We remain dull. We remain unconvinced of the reality that everything around us, God is using for his own glory. And so the angels begin to lovingly admonish, correct these dear women who are seeking after Jesus. Not being accusatory at all. In fact, Matthew Henry said this in his commentary related to this passage of Scripture. He says, They would rather find him in his grave clothes than angels themselves in their shiny garments. A dying Jesus has more beauty in the eyes of a believer than the angels themselves. And this idea that they went to the tomb expecting to find Jesus, they were not at all comfortable with these angels. Thus, the text tells us that they stared at the ground as the angels spoke to them. But what did the angels do? Well, the angels begin to stir their hearts and their minds by asking that piercing question, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you here? Now, we know the answer to the question because he, Luke writes it for us. He tells us, he, he, he records the reason they went there with the spices in order to minister to this dead body of Jesus, if you will. And the angels, why are you here? If you would have listened to the teaching of your master. Now, listen, let me stop there. I've got to say this. I've got to point out this. Even though the angels are being gentle with these women, an angel cannot comprehend not obeying God. An angel cannot comprehend not obeying God. What do the angels do? What does Hebrews 1 tell us? That they are the servants of God. When he says go, what do they do? Do they ask a question? Do they ask for an explanation? Do they ask, well, do you have some good reasons for this? No, they go. When he summons them, they come. They are the fiery servants of the living God and they come and go and they do God's will perfectly. The angels cannot comprehend why no one would obey and listen to God. Remember, they even look into the mystery of salvation 
You know, when Satan fell, who was an angel created by God, there was no possible chance of redemption. That the level and tier of their creation, well, left them exempt from any redemption whatsoever. When they disobeyed God, they fell forever. Not so with man. And so it says that the angels of heaven looked deeply into the mystery of the gospel and how God would give sinners a second chance and send to them a saving Savior. So you have to understand from these angels' perspective, this is astonishing to them. This is astonishing to them. This is, uh, why? Why would you not listen? Why are you here? For you should be in Galilee. Because that's where Jesus said he would meet you. And they go on, these very small interaction with this angel. He says, he is not here but has risen. So he confirms the, what the, he, he answers the question. He's again dealing with their weakness because that's what they were sent to do. Remember, these angels are not working out their own labors. They have been sent by Jesus for this purpose. Go and tell them that I have risen. And ask them why they seek me among the dead. Because they are the servants of God. He is not here. And it's not that he's been displaced or that he's been moved. No, he has risen. He's alive. He is no longer dead, but now is alive. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. I love verse 8. We see here in verse 8, what is it? This grace of remembrance. What is this grace of remembrance? They remembered what? His words. They remembered his teaching. They recalled that scene, that place, those words, and then they believe they have reconciled in their hearts. Notice verse 9, and returning from the tomb, and they told all these things to the 11 and to all of the rest. In verse 8 through 10, that's the record of their remembrance and their reporting to the what? The apostles. Where are the apostles? Well, they're not at the tomb, and it's not because they're, they're strong in faith and belief. We don't know what they're doing in the house other than thinking that they too are going to be arrested and possibly crucified. We follow this Jesus, and he's been now tried and put to death as a rebel rouser, as a troublemaker, and we've been with him this whole time. They'll identify us and they will arrest us and execute us as well. They were having a pity party. They were having a pity party. You can read John and read Matthew. Well, they received this report and notice how they treated this report. In verse 10, and now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. So what does verse 10 tell us? There were multiple witnesses, not just at the tomb of Jesus, but who heard the angel's voice. They heard the angel say that he's not here, he's not been displaced, his body has not been, been moved, he's been risen, he's alive. Amen. And these women collectively, now you could think, I mean, is this one hysterical woman who is just being emotional that they're like, oh, here we go, drama city, let's just, let's placate her, let's listen to her and then we'll ignore her. No, we have a group going, 
he is risen from the dead. Now, I think this is a condemnation to the apostles. How many witnesses do you need? I mean, the Bible says that the strength of judicial cases are built on two witnesses. We have more here. We have more witnesses here, and yet how did these men who walked with Jesus for a minimum of three years, how did they treat the testimony of these women? Verse 11, but these words seemed to them as idle tales, drama, nothing of substance. That's, what it, that's the idea, nothing of substance at all, and they did not believe them. But Peter's curious, isn't he? Peter remains curious. And verse 12 tells us that Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Now there's another, and John, John's gospel speaks of this, that John also runs to the tomb. And being a much younger man, beats Peter to the tomb. And Peter ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. He's intrigued. He's marveled. Where is Jesus? Now, Jesus soon after comes and reveals himself to Peter. But that's not for this lesson this morning. Brothers and sisters, we have in these verses 1 through 11 this marvelous testimony by these angels that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, that he had been delivered over to the hands of sinful men, and they did put him to death. He didn't pass out. He didn't swoon. He just didn't fall into a very deep sleep. He actually died and was buried in the tomb, considered dead. And yet God raised him from the dead. If you look at the chapter, look at the uh, verses 13 through 35. We have this testimony of the road to Emmaus. And these were some of the disciples that heard these women give testimony that Jesus had risen from the dead. Remember, they dismissed this. And Jesus comes along beside them and he begins to teach and instruct them after they give testimony to these things. Look at verse 22. It says, but also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early this morning and did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. Now he, now who is the he? The he is Jesus, who's walking with these two disciples. He said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus admonishes them of slow belief dullness of heart because they did not believe the scriptures. And so what does Jesus do? He begins to open up the word of God from them, from the law and the prophets and from the Psalms. Notice in verse 32, just for the sake of time to highlight these things, after he had vanished from their sight. Well, look at verse 27, or he says, and in the beginning with Moses, with all of the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus gave them a theological history of what the Son of God must suffer and rise again from the dead. He had pointed out to them what the word of God said on this matter. Now, it had great effect upon them because in verse 32, they give testimony now and they say this, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Now, that's the force. That's, that's, that's the point that even the angels make. Do not believe his word. Well, brothers and sisters, 
I want to encourage all of us here this morning that we too have to contend with the Word of God. We have to contend with the Word of God. Do we believe it? Even when it's very difficult to believe, very hard to believe, unpopular to believe. And it's in our lifetime, I won't say in the history of the world, but in our lifetime, particularly you older saints can attest to this, it's becoming more and more unpopular to believe these things. I mean, it's one thing to be considered their Bible believers. Remember how we used to talk about Bible believers? Well, now we don't even talk about them. We don't even give the benefit. We're not even given the benefit of the doubt of being Bible believers. Now we're, well, those people who believe in this whole young earth theory. This, these are the people that believe that God actually created the world. These people actually believe that Jesus came into the world in the, by the womb, through the womb of a virgin. These people actually believe that he was, that he was raised from the dead. These people are crazy. In fact, there's a whole radical side of people saying these people are unfit for society. Now, that's not new, but it's new for us. So this rising of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's talk about it. What's the importance of it? Well, I want to look at the importance of Jesus Christ being raised from the dead in two aspects. The first one lies within the silencing of our accusers. That is, when Christ was raised from the dead, there was some legitimate silencing of our accusers. And we're going to look at four of them. And then we're going to look at the benefits that we personally experience because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's look at these accusers. The first accuser that I want to bring to your attention may be surprising to you, but nevertheless, it's an important one to consider, particularly if you are here today and you think you're going to get to heaven by your good works. I'm a good guy. I'm a good gal I don't really do any bad things. I'm, there's a lot of people much worse than myself. If that's here, beloved, let me assure you that you will be judged and the, you will be accused by the law of God. Our first accuser that Jesus silences is the very law of God. Why? Because the law has been violated by every sinner. The law has been broken and the law can do nothing but demand justice. That's the purpose of the law. The purpose of law is justice. The law does not give grace. The law does not forgive. The law can only demand justice. James chapter 2, verse 10, it says, For whatsoever shall keep the for whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point is guilty of all. Brothers and sisters, just one sin violates the law of God and the whole law. And when that law is violated, its only demand is justice and that's this design and there's nothing wrong with that the law is not guilty the law is not wrong it's not the problem is not with the law accusing a sinner the problem is with the sinner breaking the law of God disobeying God God said in the very beginning in that covenant of works the soul that sins shall die And Jesus, his resurrection is a testimony to the silencing of that accusation that Jesus has taken to himself the guilt that 
rightly belongs to the sinner. Those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we could go to Isaiah 53. We're not going to go there for time. I've got some other scriptures we're going to look at in a little bit. But that he, it says in Isaiah the prophet, that it pleased the Lord to bruise him, to pour out his wrath upon him, that he became the object of God's wrath in our place. Thus silencing the demands of the law. Beloved, if you are sitting here in Christ Jesus this morning, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the law has no demand on you. Christ has taken it to himself. Christ has fulfilled that demand. It is no longer on you. Now you live in the realm of grace. Now grace has a demand on you. But that's another lesson. The second accuser that Jesus silenced at his resurrection is death. Because as God said, the soul that sins shall die. Death has a claim on all who have sinned. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil. Christ removed the accusation of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 55, and 56, Paul writes, he says, Though death, where is thy sting? And where's, the, where, where's our power? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. What would the law demand if it was still in place? Death. What is the penalty for breaking God's law? Death. So not only does God, not only does God in his son Jesus Christ silence the law itself, but it also silenced the claim that death has, not just the, the passing away of the soul and the body, because we will all experience that. But that ultimate death in that when we leave this world, we will either be present with our Savior or we will be separated from him in hell. Where death is the reality. The realm of death is hell. The separation of God forever and eternity. Point number two leads to point number three. We talked about death and Satan, and now we get to Satan. Satan has, a, Satan is the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? What's his accusation? They are lawbreakers. They are guilty. They do not love you, Lord. They have offended your justice, and they are mine. And they are worthy of being cast out of your presence forever. They are unworthy of you. He is the accuser of the brethren. Brethren, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, it says, And I heard a loud voice, heaven saying, Now has come salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our Lord, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. The resurrection of Christ silenced that devil who is our accuser. If the law's been satisfied, the sting of death is taken away, then what claim does Satan have over you? See, beloved, I'm telling you, you don't have just faith in some, some figurehead named Jesus. You have faith in a risen Savior. You have faith in one who has been, who had died and now has been raised from the dead. The fourth accuser is the world. This world we live in, we're not talking about the physical trees, mountains, and everything else. We're talking about that system 
that promotes this this the sin of the devil that promotes this offensiveness of God that promotes the waywardness it promotes immorality it promotes everything that is anti-God and anti-Christ in John 16 33 he says these things I have spoken to you that in me you might have peace in the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. That is, I have put, Jesus is saying in that text of scripture, I have by my victory and ultimately in my being raised from the dead, I have silenced the world. First John 4, 4, ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. This world system, this this system of corruption and crime and immorality and lawlessness all belongs to the, the devil. And it's doing nothing but constantly trying to woo and tempt God's people to come and partake of that system and live within it. And Jesus says, you don't have, you have now have the power to overcome because I have defeated the world by my death and being raised from the dead. Now, brothers and sisters, listen, these are four very powerful and true accusers. I mean, the idea is that each one of these could stand up and say, you're condemned. You love the world system in your heart. Oh, yes, you go to church every Sunday, but you really want to get out there in the world. You really like this system that has no accountability. You like the idea of not having to, you know, obey God. You want to be, you know, foot loose and fancy free. You want to be liberated from the shackles of this law, so to speak, even if it flows out of grace. I'm gonna tell you something, beloved. That's something that is a stark testimony and a feature of every born-again Christian is that they want to obey God and they do not want to suffer this world. They do not want to partake in this world. And when we do, when we fall, we are grieved and hurt and we agonize over it and we repent of our sins and we come back to a loving Savior. Now, what are these benefits? And these benefits are going to correlate with these points I've just made. Let's look at the first benefit of justification. We talked about the law. Romans 4, verse 25. He who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? That we might be justified that God would consider us clean before him in Christ. That's what it means to be in Christ. To be righteous in Christ. To be without condemnation is to be in Christ. To be justified, to be made right, to be made whole. To be at peace with God. Remember, beloved, justification has to do with propitiation. Christ offering up of himself that propitiation for sin. The word propitiation means to smooth the wrinkled brow of God. Why does one wrinkle their brow? They do so when they get angry. That God is justified in his anger toward sin and yet he has provided a way of redemption, a way of salvation. And when we accept that way of salvation and we justify God's wrinkled brow goes away concerning us. We have peace with him. We can enter into his presence and have blessing and joy and happiness. The second one is adoption. Adoption. 
This is also in relationship to the liberation from the devil. We were once in the family of Satan, but now we've been removed and delivered into the family of God. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verse 3. Among them we too, he's talking about this prince of the world. He said, verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of the, this world, according to the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's who we were. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were children of wrath. Verse 12 says this. He says, remember, he's talking about the Gentiles here. You were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Brothers and sisters, that's everyone without Jesus Christ. Look at verse 13, but now in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by his death, through his resurrection. Verse John 3 and verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil and the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Beloved in Christ, he's been raised that we might be liberated, set free, moved from the family of Satan to the family of God and experience what it means to be liberated and free from those lusts, desires, and sins, if you will, the, 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 the inescapability, the power to sin, to keep on sinning. We have been delivered. That power has been dealt with. Galatians chapter five and verse one, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit yourselves again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, freedom, freedom to what? Freedom to now serve the living God without fear of condemnation and judgment. We're dealing with holy things, beloved. There's no way you can serve God with the fear that you are condemned and guilty before him. You gotta deal with the guilt. You've got to deal with the condemnation. And if you're here this morning and you have never done that, now today is the day. Because Christ has written, risen, you can be set free from the demands of the law. You can be set free from the grips of the devil. And you can be delivered out of this world's corrupt system. And you can be liberated and free to serve the living and true God. The third word, justification, adoption, sanctification. What is sanctification? Sanctification is that ongoing battle that we go through every day with sin. It's that ongoing battle, that war that is within us to do right over against the, the temptations, over against the, the carnality that we still struggle with because the power of sin has been dealt with, but yet there are remaining corruptions and habits within us that we will contend with throughout our Christian life. Romans chapter six and verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin, that is the power of its dominion has been broken, and have become slaves to God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Beloved, meaning this, that sanctification is equivalent to eternal life. If you're not fighting sin in your life, you're not being saved. You're not saved. You're not saved and you're not being saved. Uh, the bat, the, the, every, the, every day of the life of the Christian is a battle with sin, a battle to do right. 
A battle to please God, a battle to love God, a battle to walk his paths, a battle to follow after Jesus Christ, a battle to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You know what a disciple is? The Greek word means a learner, a learner. One who learns of Christ. First Peter chapter one, verse two equates this sanctification with the rising of Jesus Christ from the dead. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling of his blood may grace and peace be multiplied to you. You say, well, this battle is overwhelming. It's, it's more than I can handle. No, it's not. Not in Christ. That's why Christ was raised from the dead. That's why he sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat in heaven so that he might give you the power and the aid to believe in him and to walk with him, to trust him and to serve him and to live for him and to repent when needed, when you offend and violate, that he would still be there ready to receive you and to continue on in your sanctification. And then thirdly, the thing we all talk about the most, glorification. Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Because Christ has been risen from the dead, beloved, we have that eternal promise that we too will be glorified like Jesus that he is the first fruits, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, being raised from the dead, that we too will follow suit, that all that have put their faith and trust in him will too also receive a glorified body like our Lord and Savior did when he met with those on the road to Emmaus and he talked with them, when he met with them in the upper room, when he talked to these women. And beloved, we too will be raised in a new body, an eternal body, a glorified body. In a, we will be raised in the condition and in the manner that it will be suitable to spend the rest of our lives worshiping and serving the King of glory for eternity. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at in all who have believed, because our testimony to you was that we believed him. Brothers and sisters, here's the thing. Do you believe the word of God this morning? Do you believe the word? Because all these things are yours in Christ if you want them. Says the word. You can have forgiveness of sin. You can have the law silenced. The condemnation of law can be removed. The accusation of Satan can go away. If you're here this morning and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, now is the time. Why? Because he's not among the dead. Why are you looking among the dead? Quit looking for Jesus among all the dead philosophers and teachers. He's risen. Go home and read Acts. He's now ascended to the right hand of God. Where all of that power and glory has been distributed throughout the whole earth. It's a fact. Let me tell you something, beloved. If you watch the common news, you're going to get depressed. You're going to get depressed. But let me tell you something. I have listened to missionaries in these Middle Eastern countries where Islam rules the day. And you know what I'm hearing? They're coming to Christ. They're coming to Jesus. But the world doesn't want you to know that because there is a war against Christianity. There is a war, a cosmic battle that rages to this very day. It was raging in Jesus' day, and he, ex he exhibited his power and glory and victory over it by being raised from the dead. They could not stop him from rising from the dead. Though they could put him to death, 
but they couldn't stop him from raising from the dead. They don't want you to know that the powerful gospel is still changing lives and is still changing families. They want you to think that Jesus is weak and pitiful, that there's, there's nothing to offer. Just go home. Keep your faith to yourself. But beloved, the rising of Jesus Christ is the power of the gospel to those who believe. And I'm encouraging you this morning not only to believe it yourself, but take this gospel with you and tell others about it. Because he's not among the dead. He has risen. Let's pray. Father, we take great delight and consolation in raising Jesus from the dead and Lord, your satisfaction with his sacrifice is immense. Lord, it is encouraging. Lord, we are delighted that our Lord has satisfied your divine demands and that in him we have peace, life, joy, forgiveness, sanctification, adoption, and we will one day have glorification. Father, we love you. We love you in Christ. But more than anything, you love us. And you demonstrated your love for your elect by raising your son from the dead. He is not among the dead. He is alive. And he now sits in heaven, mediating on behalf of all your elect. Oh, Father, give us great encouragement this day. Encourage the hearts of the saints, Lord, wherever they are, wherever we find ourselves, Lord, come and minister to us, Lord, these, these powerful and glorious truths. In Jesus' name, amen.